In the 14th chapter of Luke, the Lord Jesus gives his parable of the supper. And we can be sure that he's looking forward to the solution of all the problems we've talked about so God can now invite everyone into the bounty of his loving heart. And so Jesus said in verse 15, Blessed is everyone who shall eat bread in the kingdom of God. Then he talks about a certain man was giving a big dinner, and he invited many. And at dinner hour he sent his slave to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. This is where we are in our thinking now. We've seen that there were very great problems in reconciliation. We were so thankful to see that the problem was not with God's vindictive justice, but that God in his great bounty of love so loved the world that he wanted to go to these great measures of recovery that we've been thinking about. There were some great problems. If these problems couldn't be solved, then God could not bless man the way he wants to bless man. Now we have seen how abundantly these problems have been solved. God has safeguarded his dominion, his responsibilities as a moral governor. He has provided revelation of his great existence and personality and the true concept of righteousness. He has provided moral forces of humiliation so we might get down before God where God can lift us up and make us happy. He can't do this, of course, in a false evaluation of ourselves. Then he has provided a means by which we may have a new beginning, not only in the matter of forgiveness, but in the matter of transformation. And we have all these many, many beautiful statements, as we shall see, of what God wants to do for us. So now we are trying to see what the conditions of application are of the gospel. How do we enter into this beautiful sphere of relationship that God uh, desires so deeply that we should all experience? And so you notice in your study of the manual, we have three sections uh, concerned with this entrance into this new wonderful salvation. We have one section which we call realization. This involves the period of thinking that has to take place. If we're going to have this beautiful relationship with God, there has to be a selling of the argument. There has to be a selling of supremacy. There has to be a settling of what we're going to do with our lives and how we're going to live. And God certainly knows that we can never be happy living in falsehood. So there has to be this period of time. And in this very chapter... Jesus suggests this period of time, doesn't he? We go down into verse 26, and here we have the condition of salvation, the condition of discipleship, of course. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yea, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Now you understand this word hate, of course, is an oriental concept of comparison. You notice in the margin of the American Standard Bible, we have the suggestion by comparison 
of his love for me. And that, of course, is what God is trying to teach us here. That unless we're willing to have an absolute, total supremacy of God in our lives, there can't be any salvation that we can be experienced. My, isn't this a lost note in our present-day presentation? And so Jesus goes on to talk about two illustrations. Then he said in verse 33, So therefore no one of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his own possessions, who does not sell himself out completely to me. So here is the beginning of our relation with God, a total, absolute abandonment of everything. This is rather contradictory as you perceive right away to common evangelical Christian practice. Because in evangelical churches we have recognition of those who are saved and supposedly those who are consecrated. And the whole concept of consecration seems to be an optional one. This is the concept of theology which I was taught and worked so hard at. Trying to be a hard student. Trying to learn the things which were told me were the truth of the living God. This is what I started to practice in my early ministries. I mentioned just a few words. Having the idea that you accepted Christ as Savior first. And then you sat down and decided what you wanted to do with your life. If you wanted to give him a page of your life, fine. If you didn't, well, it didn't change anything. And so discipleship and lordship are supposed to be optional. In most of our evangelical books of doctrine that I'm aware of. I start out to practice this in my ministry. Assuming that when a person said he was a believer, that he was saved. Most of the people I was ministering to weren't happy in the Lord. That was obvious. Some even said they weren't disciples. They were satisfied to be saved, they said. And my theology allowed them to do this. I had all this positional payment. Their guilt of sin, past, present, and future was all paid for, of course. And so I wasn't trying to change the destiny of any of these people I'm ministering to. They had made a stand for the Bible. They turned from modernism in churches. When I came, they said, we want somebody who believes the Bible. We're tired of modernism. So I'm assuming they're all on their way to heaven. And so my ministry was toward discipleship and consecration, of course, making Jesus Lord. This was beautiful. This was lovely. There wouldn't be any reason why we shouldn't do this. And you know how much the Bible has to say about this. Then, as I mentioned very briefly, we had a number of folk who had experiences with the Lord and found out that they weren't saved at all. And when they came to very solemnly present themselves in humility to dear sweet Jesus, the Spirit of God showed them they weren't saved at all in the first place. There was no salvation apart from consecration. So there's no such thing as a Christian and a good Christian. You don't read this in the New Testament, do you? A Christian is one who sold out to Jesus. And it's such a beautiful thing to see the intelligence of this. And we can't find one single reason why we shouldn't sell out to Jesus, can we? And we find every reason why we should. And so as a result of these experiences in the assembly, as I said, they start a complete new study of the Bible, as I've indicated, and brought me to the conclusion 
that there's no such thing as a Christian who hasn't settled the arguments of supremacy. The argument's got to be settled somewhere. It's not going to be settled on the way up to heaven, is it? It's not a part of the body, is it? It's a part of our essential personality. So the, the, the model's got to be settled here then, doesn't it? And you understand the word for salvation in the Gospels, the word disciple. In the book of Acts, similarly, disciple. Disciples were called Christians in Antioch. The common word in the epistles for salvation is holy, holy ones. Which means, of course, a state of relationship with Jesus in purity, not self-holiness, of course. This is contrasted with the world. And so here's the greatest thing we're ever going to talk about, isn't it? What is the supremacy? And when I sat down to read the New Testament with this intensity of pursuit in prayer, it seems just as clear as daylight that God in His great love would be satisfied with nothing less than a supremacy in our lives. And this was the beautiful thing of salvation. So Jesus gave us two instances here whereby He said... He talks about a builder here who's going to build a tower. Verse 28. He doesn't start tomorrow. He sits down and calculates the cost to see if he's enough to complete it. Otherwise, he may have laid the foundation, not able to finish. All who observe begin to ridicule him, saying, this man began to build, was not able to finish. He talks about a king who needs to conquer an enemy. He doesn't start tomorrow. He takes time to sit down and evaluate the enemy, Jesus said. Calculate his strength. See the enemy's strength. And if he can't figure out that he can be successful, he tries to make peace and so on. And so when we talk about salvation, we're talking about the greatest decision in our whole lives. Second to none. Now we make a half a dozen important decisions in life, don't we? As far as our choices are concerned. Number two decision in life, of course, would be that of romance and marriage. And regardless of what some researchers in the Bible are concluding, Jesus still knew what he was talking about. And marriage is an intimate, total relationship of personalities for life. This certainly is number two decision. Prior to this, we've made other important decisions. We decided rather early in life the general interest of our external world. What are we going to be interested in studying? We obviously got to produce something that is a contribution to the world. This was very, very important in our lives, wasn't it? Some of us changed our early decisions later on. But here is certainly a very important decision. And so we go on to our schooling, where we would go to school to further our choice. This would be an important decision, wouldn't it? And so these are some of the great decisions. Then, as we've said, if we complete our work, it becomes very important who we would work for and where we would go to work. Another very important decision affecting our future life. If we would establish a family, we have to have a place for them, we might think of buying a home, which we might pay for in 25 years. A very important decision, to be sure. You don't expect a real estate man to sell you a house through the front door. You expect him to come in and take some time with you, don't you? Because of the magnitude of the decision. 
But all of these decisions don't compare with the decision of life, which is a total, absolute sellout of supremacy. Because Jesus is said to own us. We don't talk about consecration to our owner, do we? We rather talk about robbery if we're rebelling against him. He owns us totally. Sometimes, several times we're told this, aren't we? We've been inhabited by the Holy Spirit. We're the temples of the Holy Spirit. Jesus has given himself up for us totally. How can I be intelligent in the least and think that there can be any salvation at the cost Jesus went through without the little tiny speck of my life giving Jesus the refuse of what I've done to myself for him to rework me in any way he wants me. And of course he can have me. So there never has been any real salvation apart from a total, absolute abandonment of ourselves to Jesus. And we're so thankful we need to know so little to do this. And those of us who came to the Lord in our early life just simply said, Jesus, you can have me. I'm wrong. I've lived selfishly. I've made all kinds of plans for my life which are self-orbiting. We didn't reason about this. We knew we were doing, though. And then the love of Jesus comes across our scope. And we are, we're so moved by his tender love that so we just, here, here I am. Will you please forgive me, dear sweet Jesus? Can you find a way to forgive me? And this is the simple, beautiful salvation of the New Testament. As I read the New Testament for four months from morning to night, I'm doing as little pastor work now as I need to do. I, I'm desperate. Somebody's right, somebody's wrong. Is my theology right, or is the simple experiences that seem to be in the New Testament right? And so this reading convinced me that salvation is a very simple thing, free from all the complexities. Because when you try to get people to heaven in their sins, you have some tremendously complicated theological ideas that have to be brought in. And so here is the great thing that has to happen in our lives. And isn't it lovely, friends, that we can't find one reason why we shouldn't do this? We can't find one reason why God isn't lovely in his intelligence. We can't find one reason why the emotions of God are not worthy to be experienced. We can't find one reason why we shouldn't adore and worship the discipline of God the Father and the Lord Jesus and the Holy Spirit. So there's not one single reason why we should pursue our own selfish lives because it becomes so beautiful in it. I love this. Praise the Lord. I love this. Let us try to be as positive as we can with people. Let us not go whip-cracking around. Let us try to show people what is intelligent and what is beautiful and get them to sit down and think because there has to be a thought process in this matter, that's for sure. Now you can see right away how mistaken many of our procedures are in present-day evangelical uh, soul-winning, so-called. Notice on your page 2 of your section 7, In the second paragraph, we say salvation is not to be brought into subjection to God. Contrary to our understanding, it's not a matter of pressure. Oh, it disturbs me so much. All the emotional pressure, except Christ or else. This is not the approach we need. 
It is not a pressure situation. It is rather to sit down and think it over and be so satisfied concerning the main elements of truth about God and ourselves that we accept it in our intelligence, agree happy to live by it, and repent with great sorrow for every day lived in disobedience and moral darkness. So repentance is to admit to ourselves that God has been wholly right and that we have been wholly wrong, and of a climax of self-renunciation. Now, was is to hold God in all his dealings with men and with us. The beauty and the loveliness of God's desire for us to think with him. Uh, turn over for a moment uh, to your section 8 and your page 6. And here we have a couple of paragraphs speaking about what is repentance. Your item 6 there. In the middle of that page, we have this little sentence, which we will just think about for a moment here. Further building up what we've said, we say repentance is an intelligent evaluation of one's past life of self-centered gratification. It's an intelligent thing, not something you do under pressure, not something you do by impulse. It is to sit down and think things over. See what is right, what is true. With a firm resolve to abandon all sinful indulgence and to return to discipleship and the Lordship of Christ as Savior. Then if you look at the section on saving faith, there section 9, and your page 5, we have in your item 5, what is saving faith? And here we say that saving faith is an intelligent committal. This is intelligent too. Saving faith is an intelligent committal of ourselves to the atoning death of Christ as the only means of forgiveness of past sins. It is an act of will upon an enlightened intelligence of all that is involved with a deep realization of our guilt and our absolute dependence upon the mercy of God through the sufferings of Christ which we are permitted to have a personal interest in. It's a believing with the whole heart, we say. A total abandonment of ourselves to Jesus. Now, it is not possible to make this kind of a total abandonment without having some element of time to sit down and think things over. And in our personal work, let's try to be loving and kind and help people to sit down and think things over. My beloved friend, I have been serving the Lord in a call of God for nearly 50 years. I have had a sensitivity toward the situation that's going on in evangelical circles. It is positively tragic to see all the tensions that Christians get into and all the complications they get into. And really, as, the, as we had on this little car, this little chart, all of these complications are a voluntary choice to be nearsighted and to pursue our own little lives as though we were the most important person in the universe. And Jesus wants to settle all of these complex tensions by having us sit down and think things over as to who's the greatest, as to who should own us, and how we should live, and to have a proper perspective of life. This is what Jesus is trying to do. And if we'll only 
do what Jesus leads us to do. We'll have a sweet, restful life looking for his kind hand. Sweet Jesus, you're mine today and I'm yours. This is what Paul said here in the ship, wasn't it? Uh, I'm not going to consecrate myself to you today because you owe me, Jesus, dear. I ask you what you want me to do. That's all I want to know. I want to accept you, your kind hand, any blessings you want me to have. I know you're good to me. I know you're my shepherd. Whatever you lead me into, I want to accept for your kind hand. I know you're concerned with my welfare. And I know you're going to tell me when I need to rest. And so on. Isn't this a sweet outlook? This is the outlook of peace and rest, isn't it? Relaxation in God. And of course, this is absolutely contrary to the whole tensions of the world. Restlessness, struggle, get, hurry up, get, you're losing out, rush. And all of these things are destructive to peace and a, and a serenity of life that God wants us to have. So somewhere before we make number one decision, we've got to sit down and think things over. And a lot of people have never done this. And so they've never come to rest of mind of supremacy, have they? And the scripture is so positive and so lovely in this area. God can't have a salvation that doesn't solve anything. God's a good God. He doesn't think it's bad for us to get too close to him, does he? He wants to bring us into the life. Jesus, I came to give you life. I didn't come to improve your life. He said, I gave, come to give you life. You didn't have your life before. I lived in you, he said. And so here's the beautiful thing. Isn't it a simple thing to see that we need to give people time. We need to sacrifice ourselves. Of course, this interferes with statistics that many want to publish. We don't care whether it does or not. But when we win souls to the Lord Jesus, then we have multiplication rather than addition, don't we? And so when souls are one to Jesus, they are doing what we read in Romans 7, 6. They're eagerly desires of good works. Jesus, dear, you're wonderful. What can I do for you today? And so here's the beautiful thing that God is trying to achieve. Now, uh, a few years ago, I was blessed with this illustration you see in this section, the cloud sketch, we say. And the idea of this chart is an airplane going through a cloud. And this is a time of tension, isn't it? Some places in the world, the airport, the runway, and the plane takes off over water. And it is rather a restless thing to see this plane taking off in this way. And here is a cloud bank. As you know, a plane can take off in a cloudy situation it might not be able to land in. And here a plane is going to take off into this cloud. You say, my. And we can't help but wonder if there would be anything in this cloud. Of course, the radar equipment is discovering this. But it's not a, a peaceful time going through a cloud, is it? And then you have these disturbances, don't you? Where we have hit the air pockets. And uh, the plane is designed to be flexible. And you, you observe the wings are having a flexing effect. This is all calculated in the highest order to be sure. And so it's a time of restlessness, isn't it? And even our largest planes hit the air pockets and give us a reaction here. And so it's not a, rest, not a restful time going through this cloud bank, is it? 
And then we begin to emerge into the, near the top of it and things get a little brighter. We begin to relax a little more in our physical realization. And then we emerge above the cloud and everything changes. Here's the lovely blue sky, the lovely sunshine coming in. We look down at the beautiful white carpet down here. We have no means of gauging our speed, do we? Looks like we're just moving along. Been able to use this a number of times in witnessing to two gentlemen. Uh, sir, isn't it lovely up here? Lovely sunshine, lovely sky, lovely pattern down here. Looks like there are no problems, does it? Down below this cloud, however, is different. Down there, people are locking horns. They're trying to make each other unhappy. They're trying even to murder each other. And so here's a contrast that the Spirit of God impressed me so deeply with. That here we are in our state of selfishness, which is always a state of tension. Intelligence is, uh, selfishness is unintelligent. So it can never bring peace. And here we are pursuing ourself, which is always competitive. And here are all the tensions that exist in this. And God wants to move us out of this sphere into the beautiful sphere of love. Now is just as sure as we can read words, and just as sure as the Holy Spirit wants to teach us, there has to be a change from selfishness to love in the process of salvation. This is just as clear as daylight coming upon the horizon. And this is going to be a very painful procedure, to be sure. And it is this procedure that has to have some kind of an element of time when we evaluate things and make some decisions. So down below this cloud, the Holy Spirit is working with us. We are not seeking God, as the Scripture says. We're rather trying to pursue our own selfish ways. And the Holy Spirit is trying to get our attention. We give you some scriptures here indicating the selfish pursuit of our lives. Jesus said, he who commits sin is the slave of sin. Here's the bondage we all know about. Here's the pursuit. We were asking Satan to help us and his demons to help us in our selfishness. And he was working in us in this area. Here we have the chaos. Paul writes, the minding of the flesh or the uh, the concentration on our emotional experiences is dead. Not will be dead, is dead. A separation from God. In all the situations, nothing is pure. Paul writes in 1 Titus 1.5. And so we have the different situations describing uh, God, our, our condition. And Isaiah said there's a, like a restless sea when it cannot rest, uh, casting up its debris and so on. And there's no peace with my God to the wicked. And remember, God's definition of wickedness is unsubordination. The first commandment is God's definition, is it not? An unwillingness to recognize God and His deity and my own self in my tiny subordination. And so here's the situation of restlessness where the Holy Spirit is working with us. And if He can get our attention, then He wants to begin this process of recovery, doesn't He? And how beautiful and lovely to, to see the mercy and kindness and benevolence of God. And so we have, we have some of the warm passages here. We have Romans 2, 4. The goodness of God leads thee to repentance. We'd never make this change except for the good, drawing love of God, would we? Then we have other passages. We read about God's loving desire to, to solve the problem so he could forgive us and so on. And if he can get our attention of sincerity, 
then the Spirit of God begins to work with us to evaluate things in our life. And the first thing we see is the first commandment, of course. Thou shalt have no other gods before me, but we've had other gods. We've had a self-god, haven't we? And says, so now we have to say, now, Lord, that's, that's wrong. It's completely wrong for me to live for myself. So there has to be an awakening. There has to be a rethinking. And Jesus indicated this, didn't he? And so we have some of these jobs where we say, yes, the Spirit shows us and convicts us. That's right. I'm sorry, Lord. Will you forgive me? Here's the humbling process. Here are these jogs, the, the necessity. And God is, just, if there ever has been a doctor who has been sensitive, if there ever has been a dentist who has been sensitive, we may be sure that God is doubly sensitive. And he's trying to be just as kind and considerate as he can, uh, trying to get us to make these discoveries because they have to be made. My friends, they have to be made somewhere, don't they? There would be no conceivable happiness in heaven in self-supremacy, would there? And we haven't the tiniest evidence of any change in death. And so obviously, supremacy's got to be changed somewhere. And the New Testament indicates it's changed here. And here's the process that we have the world. Jesus said, suppose you gain the whole world. What have you gained? And you lose your own soul. Paul says here in Galatians 6.14, doesn't he? The world is crucified unto me and I unto the world. My friend, this is past tense in the Christian. It's not that the Christian should begin to crucify the world. This is what we did when we came to Christ. Paul is a past tense. This is what you did. There was a settlement of supremacy here. We're not going to have romance supremacy. We're not going to have parental relationship supremacy. We're not going to have children supremacy. We're not going to have selfish supremacy. Jesus is going to be totally supreme. He's going to rule over everything. There's going to be no competition. This is salvation, isn't it? And this is the evaluation. These are past tenses. We, we look over and the, the Spirit enlightens us and shows us what is real. And we evaluate things and say, that doesn't compare with what I now see. And then we see, we go further into, into the inner heart and life. And you have in Galatians 5.24, they that are Christ did crucify the flesh with the affections and the lusts. Not have the choice to do this. This is a past tense. This is what Christians did. When they came to Jesus, they did this. And we begin to value, well, what good did you do when I was living for you? We say, in our former selfish life. How does this compare with the dear sweet Jesus that I am now seeing? And we have to say this in advance a little bit. Up at the top of this chart, we put the drawing power of the Lord Jesus Christ and God the Father and the Holy Spirit. And it's only the drawing power of the love of God that ever motivates us to evaluate everything in our life that we thought was valuable and to re-evaluate everything in terms of the love of God. And we would never go through these painful discoveries except the sweet love of Jesus was showing us something better than we had. Oh, what a precious, precious thing. We'll try to look at a few of these passages in another area. Here we, are, we see the evaluation necessary. What's going to be supreme? My own emotions? What am I going to do in my life? Am I going to follow my impulses? My emotions? 
This is what we did, wasn't it? As much as we dared. The scripture says they did a Christ that put an end to this. Supremacy's been changed. We're not going to follow our emotions anymore. We're going to follow what is true. And our intelligence dictates pretty well what is true. And the scripture comes along and reinforces our intelligence, does it not? Then we have the concept of the old man, our old way of living. We evaluate the whole thing, a meocentric life. We said, this thing's got to end. This is not intelligent. I can't open my mind to see reality, the great dimensions of God, and live for myself. There's got to be changed my way of living. And the scripture says the old man came to an end. The old way of living was crucified together with Christ. Came to an end. And the use of the body, as far as selfishness, came to an end. There's now going to be a new principle, a new rulership in our lives. Something has happened. The old man was crucified. Again, a past tense. Something had happened. We come to dear Paul's great expression, don't we? And we have this in Philippians. We have his struggles in Philippians chapter 3. He, he begins to say the things that were to his gain. And he said he had caught them all but loss. He had to evaluate everything he thought was valuable to him. And he said, I count them all but loss. Here's the requirement of salvation, isn't it? So Paul had to bring himself down from his own self-concepted glory. And here was a, in a total evaluation. And so we have that serene summary in Galatians 2.20. I was crucified together with Christ. Again, a past tense. Not something Christians do with their option. Something we did when we came to Christ. In other words, what's the gospel trying to do? It's trying to give us a new way of living for the old. Oh, isn't it simple and beautiful? Is it ABC? When we read the New Testament like this, a great shaft of light comes down from heaven upon our minds. And we see the simplicity of the gospel. So we, as the children of God, are supposed to go out and get other people to change their way of living so that they can relate themselves to God and be prepared in this world for many blessings and enter into the place of God's preparation in the future. So Paul says, I came to an end of Paul. And he says, well, there's something strange about this, though. He says, I was crucified with Christ. It is no longer I to live, he said, but Christ lives in me. I came to the end of Paul, but that's wonderful. I, I'm still living, he says. What's happened? The life which I now live in the flesh. I've still got the flesh here. I've still got my, my facilities. We can't lose anything like that. But in other words, my, my flesh and my being is in a different living now. So how I live by faith in the Son of God. How did I get this way? He loved me. What did he do because he loved me? He gave himself up for me. This is a past tense, isn't it? We come to that lovely third chapter of Galatians, or Colossians, I should say. How beautiful this is. And here we have in verse 3, For you have died, a past tense, and your life is hid with Christ in God. Here's an evaluation of ourselves. Jesus talked about a grain of wheat falling into the ground and dying. If you plant a seed and you look at it in a week or two, you can't find the seed, can you? There's been a change. Little roots are starting to spring, outsprout, and so on. And so Jesus said, except a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies by its alone. So except we die to our former way of life, nothing will happen, he said. 
And so you have in Colossians 2, 3, 3, 3, do you not? You have died, a past tense, not something the Christian is supposed to begin to do, something we did when we saw the Lord Jesus in his, his sacrificial atonement for us. And as we felt the drawing power of his love, his tender kindness. And then we see the beautiful statement in verse 1, if you have been raised up together with Christ, what we've got to do is one thing, keep on seeking the things above where Christ is, not the things seated around of God. Set your mind on things above, not on the things that are on the earth. And so there can't be any question that there must be this revolutionary change. Uh, we give you some beautiful passages at the top of this section, don't we? And who wants anything less than this, my friend? And we are to work with precious souls until we, they, they go on their way rejoicing. Like the, the man the, the Ethiopian eunuch did in his chair. He gets back in his chair, goes on his way rejoicing. He didn't need a whole package of follow-up literature to go with him. He had the living power of the Holy Spirit going with him, praise the Lord. And something must have happened in Ethiopia in all the religious history we read about in this country. He must have taken this torch down there, the torch of what? The torch of a living, fervent relationship with the Holy Spirit. Pouring out his heart and his life. Bless the Lord. Oh my, isn't it an exciting thing to study the different words and the tenses and the things God wants to do for us. We have just a little concept of the prepositions that are involved here. Here's a little sketch that you don't have, but look at it a moment. A wonderful summary of salvation appears in Titus 2, 11 to 14. There's two great passages and we won't turn to it now. But this is a wonderful passage. Then we think of John 5.24. What a wonderful passage this is of simplicity. And here God talks about emerging from one sphere to another, doesn't he? Truly, truly, I say to you, and these are present tenses here. He who is hearing my word and is believing him who sent me is having eternal life. Not something we're going to get, but we're in a, in a relationship of life, in other words. And as I mentioned, when you have the two words eternal life, the, the important word is life. The modifier is eternal. What kind of life is Jesus talking about? That kind of life which always has been eternal and will be eternal, of course. And then the, we read the beautiful things here. And is not coming into judgment because we have been forgiven, but has passed out of death into life. Here we have a lovely little preposition which means out of from within. So here's what this verse is telling us. Here was the sphere of death, which was separation from God, wasn't it? This little preposition said God wants to move us out of this sphere. Then we have another preposition into from without. And he wants to move us out of the sphere of death into the sphere of life, doesn't he? Relationship with God. Out of one sphere into another. How beautiful God wants to help us in simplicity. A lovely affectionate passage is Colossians 1.13, isn't it? It talks about the domain of darkness and how God wants to move us out of this domain of darkness, doesn't he? Into the sphere of his beautiful love. Oh, how precious as we study the lovely little details of Scripture as to what God wants to do for us in simplicity. He delivered us from the domain of darkness, out of from the, do in the domain of darkness, and into the kingdom. And isn't this a sweet statement you remember? Into the kingdom of his beloved son, or into the kingdom of the son of his love. 
So we have one preposition means out of or within. We have another preposition means into from and out. So God wants to move us out of our sphere of separation and darkness. He wants to move us into this kingdom of God. Jesus said the kingdom of God is in you. Of course, you're not in the kingdom of God. If God isn't king, of course, that would seem to be a very elementary idea, wouldn't it? So what God wants to do in the gospel. He wants to move us out of the sphere of our selfish life, which brought nothing but tensions into the sphere of God's beautiful, loving, intelligent life that he wants to give us and enlarge our being unendingly throughout eternity. And then look at the simplicity of John's statement here. And we have this lovely little preposition again in John's writing here. 1 John 4, 7 and 8 is the mo- one of the most simple statements we can think about, isn't it? Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. Here's a little preposition. Love is out of from God as its source. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. Then he goes on to reason. The one who does not love does not know God. How could you? For God is love. If love is out of from God, how can you be born out of from God if you're not living in love, John says. And so we have the simplicity of the statements continuously throughout the New Testament, don't we? That in salvation, God wants to move us out of one sphere of defeatism and self-centeredness into the sphere of intelligence and victory and blessing and forgiveness and happiness with the precious heart of Jesus. And we must simply spend time with souls until we observe them moving out of one sphere into another. And the Holy Spirit witnesses the great thing that we must search for in our working with souls. So we see the beautiful things that God wants to help us in. Oh, it was so lovely to really go into these many simple things. On this chart, then, we talk about the pure realm of love in fellowship with God. We have so many beautiful things, do we not, coming before us. And Jude tells us to keep ourselves in the love of God. We have Romans 5, 5, the love of God is shed upon our hearts by the Holy Spirit who is given to us. All these lovely, lovely things that God is trying to tell us in the beautiful sphere. So in the process of salvation, there has to be this emergence out of the sphere of selfishness into the beauty and relaxation of the love of God. We do mention then a few things that has to happen. We can't speak much more of this section here at the time. Let us look at a few ideas we have here in these paragraphs. So at the beginning of your back, we're back in section 7, page 1. And here we're saying in the middle of that first paragraph, this revolutionary change must take place in the process of coming to this wonderful new life, mustn't it? And God finds us, the middle paragraph there, second from the bottom, we we see that we are awakened to God consciousness in the spirit of selfishness, aren't we? The only thing we know in our former way of life was selfishness. So the first thing we think about is not what our sin did to to God, but what sin did to ourselves. And we're just afraid that we're going to have to suffer for our own sin, are we not? And so we don't know anything except the law of selfishness. And so this is the the beginning of our awakening. And you know the rich young ruler. What good thing may I do that I may have eternal life? What's he concerned with? Himself, of course. And when Jesus portrayed what it was, 
He went away sorrowful, didn't he? There must be this view of uh, things then uh, as we sit down and ponder uh, what is the realm of truth. Now you notice we give you three headings in this section. Over on your page two. So the first thing we have to do is to recognize our observations. And we haven't been willing to do this, have we? We have to recognize our moral relations. We have to open our minds to truth, do we not? We have refused to be persuaded by our natural observations. We refuse to have the great concept of God that we should have because we weren't willing to adapt ourselves to the great concept of God. So we have to, be, we have to quit resisting truth, holding it down, as Paul said in, in Romans 1.18. We've loved darkness rather than light. This has to end the course. We've resisted the Holy Spirit's effort, haven't we? As he's trying to show us. That we, we have to awaken then and accept all, our, all the evidences we see. Now, we don't need to know much to be saved. We're thankful for that. But we can't refuse anything we know. My friends, let's never tell anybody to be saved if he has real problems with the Bible. He can't do this. It's impossible to make a total absolute sell out to something we question. Let's never tell anybody to try Christ to see if it works. It won't work. We must labor and pray and study and love people to answer their reasonable questions. Some of the things that are represented in the name of the Bible. I don't wonder that many people don't want to commit themselves to God. To know God is to love Him, isn't it? And then we need to show what the Bible has to say. You don't need to know much, but we can't question things that are revealed because we're asked to commit our whole lives on the Bible, aren't we? And if we question something in the Bible, then, of course, we can't do this. And then somebody's got to be responsible for sin, does it not? And we have made our excuses, haven't we? As you have on your page three. And this, of course, has to be revised. And we have to see that our excuses do not hold up. And all these excuses have to be eliminated. We blamed ourselves. We said we can't help but sin. We have to see what the scripture says about this. That we're voluntarily choosing a wrong way of living. We said look at the circumstances I'm born in. And God takes count of them. But he does not excuse us for any kind of circumstances does he. And then you have different ideas of theology that people hear about. Blaming us for Adam's sin for example. For something we're born with without our own choice. And we have to show people what the word of God says about this matter. That God's a reasonable God. Is uh, proposing a reasonable a set of rules and regulations for his kingdom. And we have to come to the point of having no more excuses for sin. We have to see what, we have to show people and understand what sin is. It's a wrong choice of some kind. Not something causing us to act but our own choice in the way we have chosen to live. We should use the different words of Scripture describing this matter, shouldn't we? And so we see we, there's a necessity uh, to come to an understanding over uh, God's truth in its basic forms. We have said, let us not try to introduce 
theological problems to answer them. Let us try to do what Jesus did, listen to people's problems. They don't have to have the answers to our theological discussions. What they do have to have is the answer to their problems. We have to find out what their problems are and try to lovingly show them what God's answer is until they come to the point of saying, I am satisfied. I am satisfied. Is there a way Jesus can forgive me? And there has to be this satisfaction of mind that's settling the argument, the realization of God's loving truth. And before there can be this total commitment, then there has to be some kind of realization of this matter, doesn't there? It must be a totally erroneous concept to think that salvation can happen without some kind of a gush out of tears. Look how emotional people are over sports, for example. Look at how you feel if you go three hours on the wrong road. Here you are, you had a fork. And somebody told you the wrong way. You drove three hours out of the way. You out here, you say, how do I get over to this place? Oh, sir or lady, you have to go all the way back here to that point. And don't you have emotion over that? <laughs> Spending three hours in, in a loss of time? Do you think when I see by the enlightenment of the Holy Spirit, I've lived my whole life in a wrong way? Do you think this is ever going to happen without emotional outgust of our heart? It's totally irrelevant. And impossible to conceive of. And we see that repentance, strictly speaking, has nothing to do with emotion, does it? But when, I, when we are awakened to see that we've lived wrongly, our whole scope of life has been wrong. There can't be anything but the deepest of reaction, can there? And we give you some suggestions as to how we come to this realization. On your page four there in the middle, here are... Different experiences and observations we have, is there not? And then we see Christians before us who have witnessed to us of the loving truth of God. And we begin to look at the Bible. We begin to see it as reasonable. God is not trying to demand something from us. He's trying to reason with us. And it sounds so reasonable, so logic, we begin to observe. And then we begin to study about Jesus, maybe and see what he tried to say, and read about his life. Then we begin to read about the grief of God over sin. We say, my, if my little disobedience has hurt God that much, I certainly must turn from everything that's hurting God. And then the completion of the matter is when we allow ourselves to think, as the Holy Spirit enlightens us, in the matter of the sacred atonement of Jesus, and how he gave himself for us in his totally devoted way. So there has to be some kind of a realization of our situation before God. Before this whole matter, it can be settled, does or not. And my, how the Holy Spirit is working with us from beginning to end. We must remark a little bit in our beginning here upon the next section on abandonment. You notice we use a non-theological word here, abandonment of selfishness or supreme self-interest as an end of life. This is the, the word repentance is what the scriptural word uses for this. And so there has to be, as a result of this thinking process, and we've talked about the thinking process, 
As uh, you may have observed, back in the section on repentance, we studied the words for repentance. And there we saw that, or we'll see further, that repentance is a change of thinking. Before we can have a change of thinking, we have to think. And that's what the last section was all about, wasn't it? The thinking process. Then there has to be a change in our thinking. That's what we mean, abandonment. We have to see that it is wrong for me to be meocentric, to live for myself. This is obviously totally wrong. And to have a change of thinking is to think things over and decide that it is wrong and to forsake the situation. As usual, we give you some key passages at the head of this section. And you observe right away that the Old Testament and the New all talk about this necessity. We'll say a few words about this a little later in our next lecture. Here we have the idea of condition, the middle of your page one now on section eight. We say a condition is not something, uh, the reason for which something is done, but something apart from which something cannot be done. In other words, there are things that we have to do, no matter what God has done, he can't save us, unless we're willing to conform and fulfill our response to God's great operations. In other words, here's a condition of God's blessing. We have to sit down and see that we're wrong. How can God ever be happy with us unless we do settle this supremacy? And so we see that a condition is something that is required. And God has declared what is required. We raise some questions in this study, trying to understand the matter. We say in the first question, what voluntary attitude or state of mind being do we have to turn from? And so we develop a few thoughts here that we've already hint. And man has lost perspective, has he not? Oh, my. Think of the way the New Testament describes our situation. And as we've remarked before, here was an outline we had, was it not? Here's what you have in that paragraph. Here we have the different ways that the New Testament describes our attitude. As we would look at these descriptions, and you can have passages, as we've already said, that show there's a change of this situation. Now, right away, I would say that, that since these are the descriptions and since the New Testament tells us there has to be a change, obviously, this requires some kind of a time element. When we sit down and think things over and have a decision, and as we've said, many people are never happy in the Lord because they've never settled things, never settled supremacy. All the sweetness of having confidence in God confidence we talked about in our first lecture. Anything to be compared with this? So certainly there has to be a radical change of some sort, doesn't it? And sin is lawlessness, as we've said. It is a refusal to be guided by intelligence. It is an insistence to, to live for ourselves. And we studied the words. We went over the words briefly that the Bible uses to describe our situation. And we saw the Old and the New Testaments. Tell us of our responsibility and our, our activity in this choice. It, it gives us a voluntary picture, doesn't it, of what we have done. And we saw we can't have a divided will. And here we have persisted in our selfishness, as we well know, as the Holy Spirit enlightens us. So we have to see the situation we have to turn from. If there's going to be this great thing, God will. Now, God wants to do something wonderful, doesn't he? My, as we get together, the many things in the New Testament that God says he wants to do for us. You know, if people could get selfish enough 
they'd reach out for God's blessing because it's so wonderful. But they'll never have it because God will be sinful to bless us if we're in a state of selfishness. But it's so beautiful to read and study the New Testament on the blessings of God, isn't it? But God is never going to give us these blessings until, of course, we join Him in intelligence. And so there has to be some kind of a change of thinking before God can do what He wants to do. Oh, the beautiful, beautiful thing that God wants to do for us. And here we meditate from day to day, and the Spirit of God blesses us, doesn't He? In some things we have read many times before. So we see there has to be a procedure here. We have a question, why is repentance necessary? We have some important things to think about here. We say a God of love can only purpose to reconcile man back into a blessed fellowship, which requires a revolutionary change. Now, as God thinks it's a good thing for us to love him, he can't conceive that we should think that we would be happy without his presence. And so, of course, he can't have any plan of salvation that doesn't solve anything, that doesn't deliver us. Jesus said, if the Son shall set you free, you shall be free indeed. Not just a little bit free, but gloriously free. What is it that sets us free? The love of Jesus as made manifest by the Holy Spirit. We emerge out of one thing. We take hold. Oh, Jesus, you're so beautiful. Uh, will you let me take hold of you in the beautiful of your love? And so we see a hand stretched down from heaven with God's love. It's so beautiful, so lovely. We compare all the beggarly things we pursue, do we not? And see the beautifulness of reconciliation to God. And God can't have any other idea, can he? How can it be reconciliation and falsehood? We have a proposition here. And there has to be a voluntary agreement in reconciliation, we mention in the third item. And the very nature of reconciliation assumes that there has to be a change, doesn't it? And so there has to be this recognition of the situation. And the gospel is a remedy, is it not? To remove the consequence of sin in our lives. God wants to forgive us beautifully. Forgiveness. Oh my, what a word. Forgiveness freely by His grace in great love. But He can't do this unless we're willing to join Him in intelligence in the way He, he sees we need to live. And He's created us to live this way. So it's just like taking something away from a child that's not good for it. I often thought when our lovely children were in their high chairs and they're booming away with something, maybe they have something that's not good for them and maybe it needs watching and you want to get away from it. How do you do this? If you go and take it away, then you have some reactions here, don't you? But there's a better way to do this. Take a nice, beautiful red rattle and shake it in front of their little eyes and those great big saucer eyes look at this new thing and they put down the thing you want to get from them. This is God's proposal in the gospel. He wants to show us something better. Praise the Lord, than our former way of life. And our God's our salvation, not to be a matter of don'ts, is it? Like we remarked, is supposed to be a new relationship of happy do's in the sphere of God's love. But before this can happen, of course, there has to be an agreement as to the principles of life and the values of life. Aren't we glad, dear friends, that God has worked with us in his great love? 